Selling a tech company isn't quite as simple as it sounds. It's not like auctioning a house. There are many, many layers to this process. From bidding wars to tax returns and how to work towards getting the price you want for your company. That's a lot to think about. Putting your company on the market, especially in today's world where tech companies are increasingly more valuable, the kind of deal you want to focus on is a deal that will bring you closer to your desired number. Buyers don't grow on trees either. They aren't always queuing up in hope for the next big tech company to acquire. As a broker, you're constantly dealing with those kinds of people and you don't know them from A to B. I mean, you don't know who's going to close and who's not going to close until you don't, right? And so the best brokers are out there constantly monitoring for that, pushing the deal, whipping the deal through as fast as possible so that you know if that does happen, we haven't wasted too much time with that particular buyer. I'm your host, Randall Silvey, and this is the Deal Closers Podcast. On today's episode, we talk about the process around selling a tech company, industry trends in M&A, and some of the mistakes first-time sellers make. Lassiter Mason has an extensive background as a broker. Working with Jason and Ron at WebsiteClosers.com has been a completely different experience from the financial realm he hails from. I think that the experience that I got working my way up in the finance realm and then also as a, as a turnaround consultant, just with so many different industries and so many different business models, it just dovetailed really well with what we do at Website Closers. So coming in here was, was really just second nature, knowing you know, what to look for in companies, how we need to prep companies for sale, things that we should start doing, that we should stop doing. And I think that's kind of benefited me here at Website Closers. There are unique aspects to the tech industry that other industries don't necessarily prepare you for. And nowadays, the demand couldn't be greater for tech companies. Another thing is that there's just so much excitement, momentum, and demand for tech and internet companies that that's where everyone's sort of gravitating to. I mean, anything you read in the news today in the journal tells you that brick and mortar is going away. And it will continue to go away as people get more and more interested in having things delivered to their home. You know, people are not leaving the house as often as they used to, and that's only going to continue to get you know more involved. It's just too expensive for brick and mortar retailers to spend the money on a location when they can simply ship packages as necessary. So that's the e-commerce side, and SaaS is supporting e-commerce. Servers are supporting websites, and you've got web dev and SEO and SEM out there all supporting them, and you've got all these other third-party tools that are helping them. So all of these resources, all of these opportunities and business models are out there and they're going to continue to be, you know, we're going to see more things in robotics, more things in AI and in tech in general, tech enabled stuff in general, even IOT. And I think IOT is only just beginning and we're going to see that in the next five to 10 years continue to blow up. And that's where we're well positioned to continue to go there. I don't, I don't think anyone thinks that we're going to shift from moving in this digital age to all of a sudden going back to you know, selling products on the corner somewhere. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. It's way too expensive and people don't want to be there. I think that's one of the reasons why that momentum is there, why that demand is there is because everybody knows that's the future. And we continue to hear that no matter how long we've been in business, we always continue to hear every day, every year that, you know, this is the direction it's going. I want to be involved. You know, I was never served as a, as a bricks and mortar broker. You know, it was just in kind of my consulting capacity. But I think What's unique with the tech side is that 
because it's not location specific, it's so much easier to get a deal done, I think, than if you were strictly a bricks and mortar broker. Because it never surprises me ever you know, where a buyer or seller might be calling from, what, what country it is, what time zone it is. I mean, it is all over the world that we've got to reach with our clients. And you know, I can talk to a guy today in China. It was 12 hours different. So he was getting ready for bed. And we can hook him up with a buyer in Australia or New York or New Zealand or anywhere because we're not limited by the bricks and mortar aspect of most of the tech companies that we do. Artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, these are terms we hear thrown around in media, blogs, and podcasts. And this is what the industry is building up to. There are trends starting to form since the start of the industry, and it's only getting stronger. When it first started out, I think that there were... The level of sophistication is really what has changed between then and now. It used to be five years ago, anybody and everybody with a little bit of spare time on their hands opened up an Amazon account. They were going to Alibaba, getting widgets, putting a label on it, and then just selling them. Now, you can't do that anymore. You if, Now, if you're on Amazon and pretty much the vast majority of people who are selling e-com are going to have an Amazon presence, but you've got to be far more sophisticated if you're going to compete and succeed. I've seen that change. I've seen the size of the deals have changed. It used to be just you know deals in the hundreds of thousands. Now it's in the millions and tens of millions. As Jason was saying, everything continues to move towards e-com. These companies are getting larger and larger and larger. The other thing that I, I think I've seen change, which is you know definitely for the better, is not only the sophistication of the buyers and the sellers, but also of the support professionals that are out there. Accountants, attorneys, lenders. It used to be you couldn't find an account that could help somebody with an e-com P&L because they didn't understand eBay or, or Amazon or Shopify or, or how to translate that. But now you have a lot of people that have a lot of knowledge. They specialize in these things, especially some of the attorneys and the lenders. Lenders are still kind of can be hard to find. Not, not hard to find, but you can find a regular SBA lender anywhere. To find an SBA lender that understands e-com that's a different animal. And you know, those are the people that we can help direct buyers and sellers to, as well as for the accountants and the attorneys. Ron and I certainly have seen a sea change in the last five to 10 years. At the beginning, everybody was buying websites. All traffic was driven to websites. Google was the big play and how to manipulate the Google algorithm for organic search. And you know, slowly but surely, people began selling on Amazon. And you'd see over the years, you'd see a 50-50. You know, maybe it's half selling on their website, half selling on Amazon. And now almost everybody, if it's in the e-commerce space, almost everybody is 95% plus on Amazon because the, it's so expensive to drive traffic to, say, a Shopify storefront that it doesn't make any sense to waste money there because it's going to be far more expensive for far fewer sales than it is at Amazon. So that's where everyone focuses. They focus their PPC there. They focus you know, on their listings and making sure their listings are you know, top priority and everything's done in a perfect way. And it's just, it's changed considerably. And back when Ron and I started, you couldn't even, you know, sell a company that was operating on the Amazon space as an asset sale. You really had to do it as a stock transaction because there was no way to actually move an account from one EIN to another. You know, that tells you the change right there. I mean, when you've got 5 million Amazon third-party sellers out there, obviously a lot of those guys are going to be selling their companies. And I think Amazon saw that, you know, we better make it easier for them to shift that legal entity to someone else, or it's going to end up being a big problem for us. And who knows how many of those have been sold. I know we've represented thousands of them 
but uh, who knows how many have been sold across the years, and I'm sure that became a pretty interesting headache for Amazon as time was progressing. This is the importance of having pros selling your company. The knowledge that website closers have acquired, being around for as long as they have, has equipped them with the right tools to represent companies. Many entrepreneurs have a romantic attachment to their vision and the businesses that they've built. So when it comes to selling it, wouldn't it make sense to place that business, your baby, in the hands of experts who know what they're doing? Ron and I were flown into the number one SBA bank in the country so we could explain it. And you know they decided that it was too risky for them at the moment, but my guess is that changes over time. So what we're trying to do is you know, switch that 90-10 rule into more of an overall, everybody has the opportunity to close deals. It's not just one or two people in a firm that are closing the vast majority of the deals, but everybody's working together. And one of the ways that, you know, that we see success there, not only the education piece, but also our buyer development. You know, we do a lot of work on buyers that you know, I don't really think a lot of firms do. And like Lasseter just said, is not just putting a buyer and a seller together. You know, that's nothing. Anybody can do that. We have over 800,000 people following us. Any given listing we put out, we've got over 200 responses. I mean, it's massive. So putting buyers and sellers together is the least of our worries. And finding a buyer is the least of our worries. It goes much further into that. And to shift from being one of the people that aren't in the 90-10 to becoming someone who closes deals on a regular basis, it's those little things that you have to be thinking about. You have to understand all the value propositions that go into any particular company. You have to understand how they work, how they operate. And even if you as a broker don't fully understand it, you've got a team behind you here at our firm that's going to jump on help walk through it, help explain things, and always be there during the process. And that is where we're starting to shift away from the 90-10 rule, and all of our brokers are beginning to share. And as the franchise develops, you're going to have people in all these different countries that can bring buyers relationships that they make to everybody else's deals, no matter where they are. And that is just so completely different from the brick-and-mortar world that these companies like the Sun Belts and all the other guys out there that have been there forever, they all sort of started out in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. And you know they made their money off of the local deals. We're not doing that. We're making our money off of deals that are all over the world. And so that's why this franchise is going to be so powerful because the buyer relationships that we build, and certainly I agree, just putting a buyer and a seller together is is nothing. It's you know getting them through diligence and answering questions to investors in the background that don't understand the business model. I mean, you'd be surprised how many people out there in the investment community have no idea what a third-party seller is. Knowledge is power, especially when you're at the negotiation table. If you're a seller who's never sold a company before, you take the risk of potentially making rookie mistakes. Here's some advice on what to avoid and what you can do to make your business more attractive to a buyer. As they get more knowledgeable about you know this process and this industry and this sector, I'm seeing some of these mistakes not as frequently, but above and beyond, you know they don't have good books. So many sellers will have. I heard it today. I was on another conversation today. The seller of a large business evaluates it by looking at his bank account. So many of them do that. So you know you have to have books before you can go to market because the first question a buyer is going to ask is, "Let me see the books." But that's why you know we'll work with sellers for six months or a year or whatever if, it, if that's what it takes to get that done. Other somewhat common mistakes I've seen is that sellers can get a little crazy on their tax returns. I mean, we all know that there are deductions that you're legally allowed to take and that's great. Go for it. Do whatever you need to do there. But where it really messes a deal up is if a seller plays around with inventory, which affects his cost of goods sold. I've seen that 
a number of times. You can't fix that. You can't get around that for the bank. If your sellers go on SBA and there are a bunch of line item expenses that we can add back, that's great. But if your cost of goods sold is showing 70% because you're playing with the inventory, you're not going to get financing. That business will not be bankable. And so you saved a little bit on your taxes, but then you went from a three or four multiple to one multiple on the value of the business. We close the vast majority of the deals that come to us. The singular ones that don't close is almost always because of one of two things. One, a seller took their foot off the pedal and stopped trying to grow the company. And if it's e-commerce as an example, a perfect way that you would ruin your company in the middle of the process is by stopping to buy inventory. Same as not mowing the grass. It's the same exact thing. You've now made your company look scary, just like you make a house look scary if you don't mow it. So, you know, that's A, that's one of the things that will kill your deal and nobody wants to buy it at that point. And now you've got to wait a couple years if you can survive and get out of the hole that you've created. You, now you've got to wait a couple of years because now you've got bad books and you need to wait until you've got good books again. And usually we look at things on a trillion 12 month basis. So, you know, it's really super critical that, you know, we always talk about how you want to sell on the way up. You always want to sell with growth and you want to continue to grow during the process. And this is a two to four month process. This isn't something that happens in a day. So because of that, you know, you've got to continue going. And that's also a good reason why you want to come to us as early as possible. Because if you know you want to sell in the next six months, well, if you haven't already started talking to us, you're making a mistake. Because we got to make sure your financials are together. We got to make sure that your cost of goods is the way it needs to be. We need to get all these questions answered so that we can then take you to market and start the process. And then we have to get into diligence and close the deal. So that's one thing that we see a lot. And the other one is just sellers whose expectations are just way beyond what anybody would be willing to pay. We have no problem with going to market for somebody at a higher level than what we know the marketplace is going to bear. And with 1,800 comparables in our database, we know what the market's going to bear without question. We've spoken to all the buyers. We know everybody that's in this space. We know everything about this space. So when we tell you what the market's willing to bear, you can be sure that it's right. However, we're perfectly fine with going to market below or above that based on you know how fast a client wants to close. And it isn't an issue at all for us. In fact, we're fine with it if it's a great company and it's growing to go super aggressive to market and see you know, what's out there and see if there's somebody who's willing to you know, pull the straw on that one. But it's important for you to understand as a seller that if your expectations are not reasonable and they're not within the market, your opportunity to close goes down tremendously because you, know, you also have to understand that the buyers that are out there have to work with you after close. They're involved with you through and through. It's like a marriage. And you know, if your expectations are too high and you're pressuring too much, they know what it's going to be like after closing and they don't see you as a quote unquote reasonable person. And there's nothing wrong with trying to get everything you can out of your deal and pushing hard. You should be doing that. That's what entrepreneurs do. But going out and just getting crazy, you know, this is what I'm going to do or I'm walking, that kind of stuff, your deal's unlikely to close. And you're probably not going to be real successful as a business owner either if you have that kind of mentality. What we see oftentimes is someone coming to us that has that mentality and they're not serious about closing. They're not serious about selling. And that's a problem too because it's going to cost you a lot of things to go through this process. It's going to cost you time, energy, and money, right? Because you're going to have to make sure your accounting's in order and you may want a lawyer to you know, look at several documents for you. And also that time has a cost, right? Because you're not focusing on new products or new services for your business. You're not focusing on your employees or getting new employees. There's so many things that are distracting during this process and you need to continue to grow. So 
if you're not serious, it's almost assured that you're not going to close. So those things, you know, if you're a seller, get serious first. Get it in your head to get serious. I think you come and talk to us as early as possible. Tell us your expectations. This is what I want. Just yesterday, Ron and I were on the phone with a group that said, we want $10 million for our company. And we said, okay, that's great. Now we can start planning accordingly. And they said, well, we figure it's probably going to be 18 months. In reality, we think we can take them to market in six months. But you know, had they not come to us now, you know, they wouldn't have any idea. And we're going to work with them through this process, whether it be now in the near future or in 18 months, we're going to work with them through that process to get them that $10 million they want or more. And that's the good seller. Another common one is you know, understanding cash versus accrual accounting. We can generally get beyond that, explain that if they're not aware, and then you know, we, we muddle through the inventory and we can true that up. Either late in the year or early in the year, if you're thinking about selling your company, definitely reach out at this point because you haven't filed your tax returns yet. Usually in a business, that is a critical component of selling your company. And so we can kind of advise you on what to do. And Lasseter had made a comment on, for example, adjusting your COGS. Now, it's important to note that we're not the IRS. We're not here to judge you. We're here to advise you. What you do is what you do. You make your own decisions on how to pay taxes or not. But if you're thinking about selling your company, that's the time where we can say, these are the things that the bank will allow you to write off. And these are the things that absolutely will not, and it will cost you in the process of selling your company. If you're serious about selling your company, this is the advice to follow. Get serious and clear about what you want for your company. None of us want to deal with someone at their tire kicking. Now, we certainly understand if you've looked at a deal and it ends up not being as presented before. But if you just change your mind after putting something under contract and you've wasted everyone's time, people have spent money on you, we've looked at you versus other buyers, you know, that's very bad. And we see you as a threat. You're now a threat to our business and our model, and we no longer want to work with you. I think to add to that is one of the things that Ron said years ago that I never forgot. And this is one of the things that we try and educate our sellers on is because very often we'll get more than one offer at a time. It's not always about the best offer. It's about getting the buyer that's going to close. Thanks to Lassiter Mason, Jason, and Ron for taking the time to have this discussion. Feel free to send us any questions you have about mergers and acquisitions. We'd be happy to explore the answers. Till next time, this has been Deal Closers. Deal Closers.